This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. everybody, it's John Hall, the senior editor of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. We're at the Craft Brewers Conference, which is happening in Denver. And sitting across from me right now, I think, is one of the most popular guys on the floor. He is routinely stopped, asked to get selfies with uh, autographs in all of his books. It's Mr. Randy Mosher. Thanks for being here. Thanks, John. Great to be here, always. We're going to talk about flavors and home brewing and a whole bunch of other stuff. But first... I have to say, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. For 25 years, G&D has led the way on innovative solutions that match their brewing customers' immediate and future needs. G&D backs every project they touch and provides service second to none. Contact G&D Chillers today for your chiller sizing needs at 1-800-555-0973 or reach out online at gdchillers.com. Also, the founders launched SS BrewTech with a very clear goal to advance brewing equipment design, performance, and quality to the very highest standards in the industry. With a team that draws upon strong functional backgrounds in brewing, science, mechanical engineering, industrial design, supply chain, and manufacturing, SS BrewTech has the people and skill sets you want and expect from your supplier of pro brewing equipment. Head over to ssbrewtech.com for more information on their brew houses and brewing gear. Are you best known as the author of Tasting Beer? I would say that's probably the case. That and Radical. Okay. You know, that gets inside people's heads pretty well. But most, so. but, but both are required reading, I think, uh, if, if people want to get into the industry or want to learn more about beer. Um, you know, or just have a, a larger appreciation of of, of the product. It, it, it's it's the first thing that I bring up uh, when mm-hmm. people say to me like, "Oh, I'm just starting to get into beer right now. What should I What should I read?" And the first thing I, I point them to is is tasting beer. Yeah, and of course that book was designed off of a course, you know, that we we were doing for Siebel, and I taught that material for a couple of years. So that's kind of why it became the standard textbook in a lot of ways, just because that's the structure of it. Radical was like this 10-year brain dump of wacky ideas that I either created or came across, you know, or heard about from homebrew circles or wherever. So quite different books, really. But um. When you're out and around and sitting at a bar and you're or going to a brewery, is there something that, that is a pet peeve of yours that you see people doing when they're trying to experience their beer that you just wish you could walk up gently to them and say... Have you thought about this? Well, um, not putting it in a glass is one. Okay. But usually that's not a big problem in a bar. Um, I have to remind my wife now and then, but most usually I've got her trained on that pretty well. But I, I don't know. I'm not a real stickler for anything, and I really want people to enjoy it however they feel like they want to enjoy it. I certainly w- you know, appreciate it when they're respectful of the product and kind of pay attention and try and taste it. But yeah. You know, I know beer is about all kinds of different things, and sometimes it's just mindless drinking and watching a football game or whatever. And I have, you know, I can't have a problem with that. It's it's interesting though when you talk about putting stuff in a glass, and 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 I'm with you 100, percent and it has to be a clean glass as well. But sure, um, there's such a, a culture these days with so many of the breweries that exist of drink from the can, uh, with so many breweries that are uh, you know canning their beers like they. 
I don't know if they don't want you to see how the liquid looks inside, um, or if it's just the uh, sort of the counterculture to you know the, the the way that the industry came up in the beginning of you know proper presentation and uh, and and you know savoring the flavors and the aromas and everything else like that. But it sure. does seem to me that there's so many of the younger brewers that are making hazy IPAs or pastry stouts or, or canning their beers that they want you to drink it direct from the can. I don't know why they would because they're paying you know hundred, hundreds of dollars of worth of hops per tank and yeah. if you're drinking trying to smell out of that tiny little pull tab hole you're missing out on it so it, it doesn't you know one of the things I would have never predicted is how important cans became you know and, and it's like it's a package it's a can it's a bottle they're both good packages you know cans are lighter they ship better they're more recycled there are some technical advantages but as far as the beer goes it's no difference but but the fact that some people only buy canned beer and that canned beer maybe three four years ago just became the cool format and if it's not in a can it's just not cool anymore yeah you know and i think that was just uh maybe people didn't want to drink their dad's beer or whatever but uh I, that's something i never would have saw coming you know i saw cans it's like yeah this is these are fine you know but um it's just the extent to which that really mattered to people is kind of surprising to me. You mentioned aroma, and it's that that is really one of those things where I think just because of, of the nature of putting the product in your mouth and, and, and tasting it, taste is really the thing that comes up most often, I think, for, for, for people. But aroma, you make the argument in, in, in the book, and I think you know correctly, is, is so much more critically important to the beer drinking experience. Well, right. Beer has five tastes. Sweet, sour, salty, and bitter. And in a really old beer, you might get a little umami, a little soy sauce note, you know, but that's not very common. So now you have five things as opposed to a beer in terms of aroma, which has at least a thousand things and maybe two or three or four. I don't know what these have. Can you actually keep in the list? No, okay. (laughs) You really want to get going on that? Here we go. Here we go. (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, so really if if you're into it, like, you could take water and put salt in it and sugar in it and, and you know, replicate the, the basic taste of beer with just a handful of ingredients, but it would, would not be beer. Yeah. It wouldn't, ta- wouldn't have any of the characteristic. People don't really know how to separate taste from aroma, and then there's this thing called flavor that's a synthetic sense that your brain actually puts together for you from those two things, plus mouthfeel, plus how you're feeling that day, and you know, all of your personal memories and everything, and it kind of presents this flavor thing on the plate. Um, so it's that's part of tr- training yourself as a taster is trying to be able to separate those things a little bit. And it's, it's harder than it seems, you know, because uh, we're just not built that way. So how do you, when you're, when you're talking to people about this then, um, what's a good first step to take? Pay attention. You know, I, I always say like one of the, like a like how much tent, do you know the difference between your toothpaste and somebody else's toothpaste? Can you characterize the flavor of your toothpaste? Because there's a half a dozen there. You know, there's mint, there's peppermint, spearmint, star anise. You know, there's a bunch of things that go into toothpaste, and each brand has a slightly different characteristic. Even each flavor, each like purpose of toothpaste, they change that flavor up in different ways to make it more tingly or more smooth or whatever. And so, like, are, are you really paying attention to the things around you in your life? You know, do you drive around with the car windows open and just, like, watch for smell? Yeah. You know, because smell is something you kind of have to, unless it's overwhelming, you kind of have to turn it on. Right? You need to click that on switch every now and then because it mostly lies in the background 
it's its job because it doesn't want to overwhelm you with a bunch of stuff that's not useful to you. Uh, and when that something, you know, if you smell smoke, it's like, oh, high alert here. We got some phenols and some pyrazines coming in. That might be trouble, you know. Um, but otherwise, it's, it's like just really pay attention, you know, think about stuff and try and peel those layers back and use those little memory flashes that you get every now and then you smell banana candy in your beer well it's really there there's a chemical for that and you know you're pulling up a childhood memory of eating banana runts or whatever it is you know and that's your like your greatest tool is that inner taster that's sitting inside there with your whole life's experience and it's trying to tell you stuff and you got to listen to it it's one of the i've talked to brewers who say that they just walk around uh farmers markets or uh green grocers and just sort of smell the produce in different forms as well so you know before you cut into it what does it smell like and then you know what does the rind smell like or taste like versus you know the the flesh and and and, and everything else as well and that that yeah. that to me is something that i've started doing just simply because uh, in the last couple of years just simply because it, it does evoke some of those memories and it, it you can recall some of those as well yeah we're really good at that you know and even and people they've studied this and they find that people don't think they're very good at it but we're re- way better than we really give ourselves credit for but you have to you know you have to kind of make an intentional effort to pay attention and kind of look at that and listen to like when your inner taster wants you to blurt out some dumbass thing you know like we were at a champagne tasting with my wife and she picked up a glass and goes horseradish and, you know, she, I've got her trained not to filter herself. And sure enough, that had a little corky, you know, a little TCA cork kind of thing, plus that spiciness of whatever grape variety it was. It's like, yeah, oh, yeah, I could see that. You know, so those little things like that you, that you want to say, but you're usually too shy or think, well, why would I say that? Um, it's always right. But what about the power of suggestion, though? If you weren't thinking horseradish and now all of a sudden your wife has said it, it's almost impossible not to pick it up at that point. And, and yeah. I, I've, I've seen you at beer tastings. I've done this myself at, at some where it's, you know, you, you try to trick people a little bit. And you say, well, who gets, you know, elements of cherry pie off of this? And you, people, you know, because they, they want to believe. Oh, and yeah. There's, well, there's they want to believe and they want to be good in class. Sure. Too, you know. Yeah. It, it's, we're very prone to suggestion you know it, we're, we're too much prone to suggestion i have to be careful because i want to share everything it's like oh you're going to find this and this and it's like no 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 i have to really watch myself when i'm presenting things because i want them to do it and i don't want them to just you know people in the tasting i don't want them to just find whatever i tell them is in there because that's not fun for anybody really right you know it's sort of the, the journey of self-discovery i think is so important in beer it's and huge yeah. yeah it's huge and that's the inner journey you know of tasting and, uh, you know, there's a lot of new science on that, that that bears all that out. It's a really, we're very mysterious in the way we're put together in that realm. So, I want to switch gears to home brewing, yeah. as it were. Uh, you know, obviously Radical Beer uh, and all of the other many uh, home brewing books that, 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 that you've done over the years and, and endless columns and uh, lectures and, and everything else. Um, it's so interesting to think of 40 years ago, it was homebrewing that was starting to help create the craft beer industry as, as it is today. And, you know, the, the sure. dedicated people who were sort of getting together um, and trying to replicate old recipes and, and really trying to ba- bring flavor back. Um, how have you seen the evolution of homebrewing from the early days to, to where it is now? 
Well, it's certainly gotten way more sophisticated over the, the ages. You know, one thing about it that's fun because I get to travel some internationally and talk to homebrewers. I was just over in Spain, for example. And the they're just getting going. You know, BJCB judging is like five years old over there, and they didn't have enough Spanish judges, so they got some from Belgium to come over or, or, or someplace. And, and so, you know, we forget how much knowledge and experimentation and creativity is this giant fountain of wealth of stuff that homebrewing is. And when you go places that have started up craft brewing without a big homebrew community, they're missing something. Yeah. You know, they're missing, crea- they're missing a certain type of creativity. They're missing a lot of trial and error experimentation uh, to see what works and what doesn't work. They're actually missing quite a lot of technical knowledge. They're missing tasting sophistication because of the beer judging program. Uh, so, you know, it's still an ally of craft. And, uh, you know, almost almost everybody that works at a brewery, start uh, certainly in the brew house, started as a home brewer. You know, that's changing a little now as craft brewing. People get out of college and, you know, and it's like, oh, right maybe I could be a craft brewer without having a home brew. Uh, but um, if you don't do that, do you think you're missing a critical step? Homebrewing? Yeah. Uh, you know, you have to, I think, um, in terms of recipe development, that's probably the big thing. You know, a, a brew pub might do, you know, if, if you're the young guy at the brew pub, you might get to do a few beers a year. Whereas a homebrew, you can make a new beer every year, every week. So yeah. you learn what your style is. You learn what you like. You really learn the ingredients. You know, people don't. I think a lot of brewers don't understand the specific flavors of ingredients as well as they think they do. You know, so that hands-on stuff and that, like, too small to worry about failing kind of thing where you just try stuff and, yeah, my friends will drink anything pretty sure. much. You know, so and then I think if you have to dump five gallons, you can dump five gallons. You, yeah, absolutely. It, it rarely happens. You could throw fruit in it or whatever, you know. So it, it's never... You know, I, and you can obviously you can learn all that in a in a brewery situation. But I think being able just to have that freedom to do whatever you feel like, and I know some brewers that are professional brewers that still homebrew, probably for that reason. You yeah. know, just to to have direct hands on. I'm not worried about is this like the latest greatest style? It's going to get me points on Untapped or whatever it is. It's like this is this something I like or not like, and you know. That's an important thing to figure out about yourself, even if you're in a commercial enterprise and you're trying to make a certain, you're trying to make your fans happy with what you make. But that's a two-way dance, and uh, when you're just doing it for yourself, it's just you. And there's an intimacy with that as well. That is, you brought up Untapped, and you know, certainly with so many breweries out there, and uh, it, 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 that sort of personal connection I think can be lost when it comes to tasting beers, even out in a in a general setting. Uh, as it were, you know, you, you say you, even before just um, the the focus uh, of, of tasting things, and I think when everybody's worried about checking in on their phone or there's action happening around them, uh, you can sort of lose a little bit of that that intimacy. And the thing that I like about home brewing, uh, even though I don't do it myself, but when I hang out with my friends, is you are touching the ingredients again. It's that tactile uh, experience. And so in those right. early days, though. When everything was just starting to take off, I, I, I wonder if that sort of fueled the passion. Um, I wonder if that sort of fueled the passion that created this industry where we are right now of going from these big hulking factories uh, that were making, you know, the American light lager and some of the other stuff, or you know, to something that was more personal and more nuanced. Well, I don't know. For me, it was just we just you know read those Michael Jackson books and. 
got energized and discovered that there was a world of beer beyond what was on the shelves, which at, in the mid-'80s when I started homebrewing, it was pretty thin. Yeah. You know, you had the big guys, and, the, you know, they make fine beer. The big problem is that they would just like to make one beer or maybe two, and so you have shelves full of all the same stuff. And um, that's why they ended up with just two big companies because everybody was more or less making the same, pretty much the same beer. Yeah. And so, you know, for us it was just a matter of necessity, but it was also just this great adventure it was like finding new music or finding an author or finding, like, any creative experience. We just wanted to have that, you know, and, and also, like, make that. So, One of the... Do you remember um, the first homebrew you ever made? Uh, yes. Uh, well, do I. I put that out of my mind pretty well. It took us two batches or three before we... you keep we, saying us. Well, me and my buddy. Okay. It, it was my buddy, Ray Spangler. Um... And who I knew knew since the beginning of college, and we we did we did a hundred batches together before I moved up to Chicago, and uh, it took us a while to figure out that that glued together taffy like mass of yeast in the packet on the top of the rusty can that's not that great to use. Yeah, and so we finally like would buy the actual packet of yeast that was like granular, and that that third batch was drinkable. First two, I don't know that we really, I can't remember whether we dumped them, but we should have. They were, they were pretty horrific. All right, I'm going to take a break right here and just uh, thank everybody for listening and uh, to our sponsors, uh, including BSG. Great beers are made from select ingredients. With BSG, you'll bring the world to your brew house with an unparalleled and diverse selection of ingredients from across the globe to just down the road. Their dedicated customer service team and uh, industry experience provides you with the assistance you need in every step of the way. Let BSG be your supplier of choice for products essential to making great artisanal beverages so you can stay focused on your craft. For more information, you can visit them at bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at 1-800-374-2739. And this episode is also brought to you by craftbeer.com, whose mission is to tell the stories behind America's small and independent breweries and the cities and businesses that support them. On the ingredients front, it, it, it's fun to be here at the Craft Brewers Conference and, and, and walk around and see all of the different suppliers. And oh, yeah. in addition to writing many, many words, you are also a professional brewer and recipe developer, and uh, you, you do some really fun things with beers, and I want to talk about that in, in, in a little bit. But what's exciting you about ingredients these days? Like where? Well, hops are where the action is. Sure. Pretty much. Hops, and there's some, you know, the, those new uh, Kvike new they're not new they're ancient i was gonna but say those Kvi- been around for a little bit the, the yeah. kvikis that's coming out of uh, iceland and and norway and things is pretty exciting and uh, uh the flavors are pretty surprisingly mainstream on some of them and uh you know we've done one we've done a we've done two i think but we, we're gonna see about rolling one of those in, into a new england and uh, really? yeah, there's one of the strains I forget which one it is that has a real nice apricot note, and we like those apricoty stone fruit types of um, flavors for the ones that we make at Forbidden Root, and uh, so we think that yeast would just like kind of turbocharge that that uh, um, tree fruit sort of flavor. So we're excited about trying that. When you try a new hop varietal or when you find some new yeast or when you come across a, 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 you know, a malt that maybe you haven't used before is it immediate when you taste something of oh maybe I'll try this and this or do you sit on it for a while how does recipe development work 
in your brain? Well, with the hops, this is one of the things I always do at at craft beer conferences, spend at least half a day just going to the suppliers and doing rubdowns of the hops that we haven't, that we that we don't know, and making notes. And then every year I come back and I put that on, I put that on a note sheet so that we have a record of tasting notes for those hops, so that we know if we're looking for one that's got a berry note or pineapple or whatever it is, it's like, oh, let's try this, try this, try this. The other thing about hops is that there's a lot of interaction, like the magic is taking two hops that don't smell like your final beer and putting them together, and then they get you where you want to go. And it's really hard to know how that works. There's a lot of interactions between the hop compounds that they mask each other or they potentiate each other. Um, one of the things I just bought recently is an ultrasonic homogenizer that's a little, it's like a, looks like a wand with a little pointy stainless steel end on it. And you put it in a liquid, okay. and it goes 20,000 hertz and just bashes the living daylights out of whatever's inside of it. And so that breaks open all those cells and releases a lot of the oils in the hops. And then you can, you can filter that out. You get a clear liquid that is... Because hops don't really respond well to making teas. Sure. Or just a tincture. You really got to... And I don't know. I've, I've just got the thing. But my hope is that we can make some little liquid tinctures that we can squirt into beer and not just to evaluate one hop, but like evaluate the combinations. Because we've done that on small-scale pilots, like a one-gallon pilots. You know, we'll split a 10-gallon batch into 10 one-gallon batches, little minis for dry hopping, and then we'll blend those together. And that's really where the magic is, unless you want to pay 30 bucks a pound for hops. Sure. You know, so you, there's a lot of um, advantage to be gained commercially by doing that. And then malts, we just did a thing. We were, we've been talking about chocolate beer and coffee beer and things like that. And we realized that we didn't really have a great vocabulary on the malts that are out there. And so we, we went basically back and made ground up 100 grams of malt, put it in 250 grams of hot water, steeped it, filtered it. And then you get a really thick kind of concentrated tea. We put that in a golden lager and we tried 20 different malts really? and kept notes on them. Okay. And it's amazing. Like one of them tasted like kind of Hershey's chocolate and one of them tasted like really fine chocolate. And some of them taste like unholy hell and like really, really roasty campfire ashy. Some of them tasted really more toasty than roasty. Some were very coffee. Some were like fine espresso. Some were like day old diner coffee. And so now we've got an inventory of these 20 different malts so that we can pick out. And then we took, at the end of the tasting, we blend, blended together like three that we thought would be nice to make a chocolate beer. And so that's our base of our chocolate beer. Okay. And then we've got other things in our list that we know if we're making a coffee beer, we can get halfway to full-on coffee just with the malt. So we're just trying to be really deliberate about everything we do and not take anything for granted, not assume we have knowledge, like, oh, chocolate malt tastes like chocolate. Well, no, it doesn't taste like chocolate. That's one of my pet pet peeves, you know. People use because of the name. Right. And But it's like It's the association. It's, oh, I taste, who else tastes cherry pie in this beer? It's yeah. exactly the same thing. So you, as a brewer, you have to, like, really, like, watch yourself because it's just so easy to kind of assume things that you really don't if you challenge yourself it's like well wait do we really know that uh, so that's kind of how we try and um, work it and just with certain knowledge and tasting that we can use to build and then of course you need to adjust and last year at this conference tommy arthur uh from the lost abbey and port and, and, and all those he uh took home the innovation award mm -hmm. and when he was on stage it, he made a big thing saying 
that we're not really, or he was saying we as brewers, uh, that brewers weren't really innovating in the way that he had hoped, you know, that they would be, you know, 7,500 breweries deep uh, at, at this point. You know, that there's just a lot of, everybody's going down the same path. And that he would love to see people sort of forge new paths and try to find new directions and chart new courses, you know, in beer, as opposed to everybody saying, well, hey, Hazy's popular right now, and this brewery does it really well, let's just try to replicate that and, and, and go from there. I wish that I heard more brewers talk about what you just did in, in getting down to the molecular level, levels of the, uh, of the ingredients and to, to really evaluate the ingredients and not just sort of blindly follow. Yeah. Um, I mean, how important do you think it is, you know, as you know, somebody who is, is often asked for advice of, you know, taking the risks or taking really just the time to understand your beer? Well, I think that's the game, right? And, and you know, Tommy wasn't just talking about people experimenting what he really, the, the relationship between you and your fans um, or customers, if you want to call sure. them customers. <coughs> you know, we've never been in a, we, because of the internet, we've never been in a situation where our people, our, our end consumers, our fans, have as much input into what we do for them as now. Yeah. Because we, they feed it back every day. You know, your ratings are up there. They like certain beers. They don't like certain beers. Certain beers get buzzed. Certain beers don't get buzzed. And they buy what they want, and they don't buy what they don't want. And I think they respect you for trying, no question. And I think it's a little bit regional. You know, I know in Chicago we have a number of breweries that are doing specifically unique things. You know, we have Forbidden Root that's doing the botanic thing. Five Rabbit is is Latin-inspired. We have um, Off Color that's doing quirky old recipes and a lot of wood and saisons. You've got several breweries that are kind of focusing on Germanic styles. You've got... Uh, Jared Rubin at Moody Tong, who's mm-hmm. doing chef-driven yeah. food, and a lot of people that are trying to find a way that's not what everybody else does. But in the end, you got a pub and it's open. People come in. IPA's number one, or maybe Pilsner is. And, you know, I mean, that's just the, like, you're never going to sell like a spiced chestnut beer is never going to be number one. But I think people appreciate that maybe you try and do, and some of, like, it tastes great. It's good fun. Um... But what people, and even the people that are fans of those, the milkshakes and the, the sour IPAs and things, our pattern is that those are, you know, those are in the top 10, but we don't do a huge volume with them. But we sell a lot of samples. Yeah. You know, because people really want to taste them and they come to taste them and we sell growlers. Uh, but it's hard to do a volume beer that's an 8% beer. Sure. That's also sour. That's yes. also hoppy. You know, that's also fruited just because it's a lot in your mouth. It's, it's like... It's an explosion of flavor, which is what people want. But after they get that in a small glass, they're kind of ready to move on. So it's an interesting market right now. Tell me about Forbidden Root. Sure, we're a uh, we're a uh, uh, we're doing contract production, and we have a um, beautiful brew pub in an old movie theater building, a couple miles west of um, downtown Chicago. And uh, we feature bar food elevated is sort of our concept. So okay. we were recently named the ninth best hamburger in Chicago, and that's, that's a serious hamburger town. Yeah, so we kicked some is... serious ass with that. Yeah, and uh, so we have really you know a great team in the kitchen, great management team. We try and keep a mix of things on. We try and always have a yellow beer, just a drink of beer, because sure. we know not everybody wants a 
hazy IPA or, or some wacky thing. Um, but then we also do as many experimental things as we can. We've done a lot of liqueur beers. We do some small little quirky beers. We've got a, a beer that we're waiting to get nitrogenated, and it's a, a marshmallow, toasted marshmallow brown ale. Okay. So it's got a little vanilla in it and some dark caramel malt that has that sort of burnt sugar character to it. When you and, say uh, marshmallow, though, you, so you're not doing what a lot of the, the folks are today and just going out and buying Stay Puffs and throwing them into the mash. I don't see the point in that. Okay. Because marshmallows are just sugar and and vanilla. Yeah. Right? So, so you, can you know, we can that. replicate that yeah. um, just as well or better and, and with a lot of control. And, you know, I don't know. People think it's cool that you throw marshmallows in a beer, but... You know, there's a certain point where it just does become kind of goofy novelty, and uh, you know, it's okay that people have their fun, but it's uh, sometimes some of that stuff's in a little bit of a cul-de-sac. It's not next. It's not clear what the next step is beyond that ironic fun at Seven yeah. Eleven. You know, going in the beer. Yeah, it's like we're we going to do this for ten years. You know, is there enough Hostess products to to get us there yeah. or not? You know, we're going to back out and like go in a little different direction. It's just interesting to see. I love the fun. You know, I'm Mr. Wacky Beer, so I can't complain. But I, I'm not complaining. But uh, it's just uh, interesting times. Talk about the I mean, that that you do wacky beers, and there are these these. Uh, I, I visited the brewery before, and every year at GABF, uh, you usually have a line at, at, at some point. Uh, during the Great American Beer Festival, somebody will come up to me and they'll say, uh, "Have you had Randy's dot 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 fill in the blank?" And you know, and then of course you all have to make the beeline uh, over over to taste the beers. Yeah. What excites you about non-traditional ingredients? Like where where are you trying to spend a little bit of time right now uh, exploring? Well, at first I have to say it's not my beer; it's our beer. Okay. But um, well, what I'm excited about right now are liqueur herbs. I've been playing around with a lot with the old distillation textbooks. You know, we did a collaboration with Fernet Branca. Uh, we have un, had an Amaro beer we've brewed a couple of times. We've brewed a, a Negroni beer. It's a cocktail with Campari and gin. And, and uh, we've done a gin and juice beer. And I, I just find that there's some really interesting things like rhubarb root and orris root and uh, angelica that have some really interesting sort of, they're bitter but they're bitter in really interesting ways, and they have this persistence on the palate that's quite, um, I don't know, I find it really interesting. And, uh, you know, how much of that's ever going to translate into beer for us is probably not going to be like beer number one yeah. on any given week. But it's they're fun to play with. And, you know, I'm just trying to wrap my, my head around what were those guys doing back there around 1900? You know, what were they trying to do, and how do they think about those flavors? And so re rebuilding old recipes kind of gives you a little window into that and uh, so that's something that's exciting for me but um, yeah we're working on chocolate beers like like I said uh, we've got some interesting techniques that we're we're using we're trying to really deconstruct that flavor and like what is that what is chocolate really made of you know there's like six or eight things that if you put them all together there's like a fruity whiny note there's a potato chip note there's the roasted notes um, there's a you know, there's a few others, and that they're, none of them really taste like chocolate. But if you put them all together, you kind of boing, there you go. You get chocolate. You get yeah. that picture in your head. So we're just looking at, like, what's the chemistry of all these things, and where can we get it? We don't want to dump potato chips in the beer to get that pyrazine and that potato chippy pyrazine. But on the other hand, maybe we do. I don't know. You know, and then, of course, we're really looking at chocolate and looking at uh, some other chocolate products, like 
chocolate's difficult because it's not very soluble in beer. Yeah. That's the problem with it. It's, and it's very expensive. And it's kind of messy. It's oily. So, you know, it's a, like, I, we kind of feel like there's an opportunity because I don't know that anybody's really made like the great American chocolate beer yet. There's some good ones. There are some good ones. But there's ones. some that don't just blow, there's none that I've ever had that just blow you away with like, oh my God, this is just chocolate. So we got to see if we can do it. And then we're going to see if anybody wants it. But, it's um, a fun challenge. Though. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's really it, is, is continuously sort of pushing boundaries and trying to find new ways of, 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 of extracting flavors. and well, Just finding what the boundaries are. Yeah. Like, what is it? What is this stuff made out of? You know, what is chocolate? It's complicated. They study it. There's billions of dollars of commerce. So it's well studied. It also comes down to, I think, rethinking the way that we approach certain flavors. So last year at the Great American Beer Festival, you had a beer that was brewed with cherry pits. Cherries. With cherries. Cherry juice concentrate. Right. Yeah. But it was giving off a little bit of a diacetyl note to it. And you a lot were, of diacetyl. Okay. I, 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 I was being <laughs> don't nice. Be, don't be nice, John. I was being nice to you. Um, but, and, and, and at first blush, it's like, well, what's happening here? And you correctly pointed out, um, you know, that you were probably going to get dinged at the at the judging table at, at the Great American Beer Festival. Festival. And we did. Oh, did you? You, you, <laughs> oh, yeah. you got your notes back? Sure, it was yeah. uh, kicked out first round. What's all round. this diacetyl doing in this beer? Um, but you explained it to me in a different way. If, if I sort of retrained my brain while tasting this beer to think about what? Well, let me just first okay. say that, that we were deeply embarrassed as this beer started to change in the tank and become more and more diacetyl, which is normally not how it works with beer. Like, it, it, the, it's diacetyly, and then eventually that goes away. Yeah. But we were going the opposite direction, which was perplexing. And it's like, how did we screw this up? And we tested it, tested like 1,100 ppm, which is insane, insane off the charts. And then Lauren from New Belgium came up, and she knows her stuff. And she's like, oh, yeah, cherries have all that precursor in there that I think it's acetolactone or something like that, or acetolactate. And it's like this massive amount of this precursor, and, and now it's converting in your tanks as a beer ages. It's like, oh, okay. So we didn't screw up. We just were missing a really key piece of information. There. Yeah. And so then we were kind of repositioning it as our cherry cobbler beer because b- butterfat and that diacetyl note is a really important part of what makes pastry pastry yeah right so having that and then like to to have cherry have this pastry note and of course the malt supplied a a little bit of that grainy you know caramelized um bread note you know starch note and then that diacetyl on top and we never had one we weren't hiding the diacetyl but we never had one complaint from anybody's like what's all this diacetyl doing in this beer it tasted delicious but in a kind of a like a way that you wouldn't expect and certainly if it'd been an ipa people would have been dumping it out like crazy but it's it's that sort of like retraining your brain where it, when you explained that to me and when i had the beer i was like oh okay like i enjoy diacetyl in this way mm-hmm. uh whereas i wouldn't obviously if it showed up in a you know in a lager or in a stout or, or something like that where it just it doesn't necessarily belong but look at what look at wine today look at cal especially california wine uh there's so much of that wine that is reeking of diacetyl because of the famous buttery Chardonnay. Yeah. It's diacetyl. And it's in the red wines, too, because it's they use a, uh, a malolactic fermentation using lactic acid, and lactic acid can generate some diacetyl, apparently. And so those those wines have a good deal of buttery character, but people love it. People love butter. Yeah. You know, it's just a, like in the brewing world, we've been really conditioned to see it as a flaw, and it, which it usually is. 
you know, to my taste. But that was this one occasion where it's like, oh, well, this can kind of work. And in fact, when I'm tasting, I always have a harder time with perceiving diacetyl if it's in a dark beer. Because my, my brain doesn't go to diacetyl first, as it does you know, like in a lager or something. My brain goes to pastry. Oh, okay. this smells like a brownie. Oh, that must be butter in a brownie. So uh, now I'll look at it again. I'll have another sip. It's like, yeah, that's diacetyl. But it's, it's tricky. You know, when you put it with all that other stuff, it provides a context for that diacetyl where it fits right in. And it really, like, works. It makes sense in there. Uh, so it's harder. As a, tra- as a taster, you have to train yourself on different chemicals, sometimes in different contexts also. So was that one of the beers? Uh, so if you got dinged at, at, at the judging table, uh, was the cherry beer also one of the ones that you got dinged at uh, on Untapped and online? And all you know, I don't remember on that. I don't think we never had anybody at the at the at the pub. I did, you know say anything, and I I think that beer did as well. You know, did did well. Most of our beers did fairly well on those on those rating sites. Do, do you think we're too rigid when it comes to styles and? flavors and you know we're a little too tightly wound when it comes to passing judgment you know uh, I think sometimes we may be a little more tightly wound given our in different individual levels of, of surety certainty about things yeah um, you know I, I was I'm very much a style agnostic but you know when you're a commercial brewery and you're putting draft beer out in the market there's the chalkboard Right? It's the chalkboard problem. Whatever you want to call this beer has to go on the chalkboard. Yeah. And if you don't give it a style, a person behind the bar is going to decide what style it is and throw it up there. Because they can't, they can't wrap their heads around it. Their customers can't wrap their heads around it. It's, it is such a shorthand. And, you know, it's just how we talk about beer. So you can like it or not like it. You know, I like creative beer, but in the end of the day, we've got to talk to our we got to talk to the people that drink our beer and make it make sense for them. So, so uh, we do. So we talked about to jump back just a little bit as we, as we start to, to wrap up here. But um, we talked about the early days of home brewing and sort of you know the, the experimentation that happens. Where would you like to see home brewing go? Uh, you know, what in your mind do, do you hope uh, is in the future for uh, for, for home brewing? Well, I'm loving the global aspect of it. Every year at the AHA conference, there's more and more people from abroad coming. Uh, you know, there's more, just more flow of, of ideas coming back and forth. You've got, you know, Argentines have created a particular IPA, and there's, you know, so there's these new BJCP categories coming up country by country. I think that's pretty exciting, and that'll bounce back to, to us. People are like, oh, Argentine IPA, that sounds kind of cool or whatever it happens to be. So I like that aspect of it. I just hope it stays vital and um, necessary and rewarding for people. And the community aspect of it has certainly always been something I really enjoyed about it, that great camaraderie of just a drink of beer, drinking homebrew, and helping each other make better beer. That's always been, you know, I have to say, I'm not homebrewing anymore. I feel like I kind of am because I'm still working on recipes and things like that. I'm still certainly involved in the process at both breweries, but... I'm not. I'm not hands-on on, on brewing, um, but that was never what I. You know, I was always more happier building equipment than down the brewery make a beer. So. Gotcha. Um, in a moment, I'm going to ask you what your hope for beer is. But first, I want to thank uh, our sponsors for the show. G and D Chiller is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. 
you can head on over to ssbrewtech.com for more information on their brew house brew houses and brewing gear and you can bring the world to your brew house with select ingredients from BSG and finally craftbeer.com's mission is to tell the stories behind America's small and independent breweries Randy Mosher of Forbidden Root Brewing in Chicago author of so many books uh, including Tasting Beer and Radical Beer what is your hope for beer? I just hope we continue to be focused on variety you know that was why we. that's why Home brewing got started and craft brewing got started, so we would have shelves full of things that were different from each other. And we went through a little phase with IPAs. The IPA became more than 50% of the market, and that means half the market doesn't have as much variety as it used to. And, uh, you know, of course, there's a lot of different ways to make an IPA. But, um, you know, I just hope that it doesn't center back down to something that's sort of like... I just hope that we have this personal points of view out there that, that people feel free and that consumers enjoy different expressions by different breweries that have something to say. You know, that for me is what it's all about. So, Excellent. Well, thank you to everybody for listening. Randy, thank you for, for being here. Uh, if you have questions uh, for me, guests you'd like to hear on the show, topics you'd like addressed, you can reach out to me at John Hall, J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at beerandbrewing.com. You can also go to beerandbrewing.com where you can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine that now has a regular column from Mr. Mosher in there that you can uh, read every two months now, and you can go online to read our archives of that column as well. You can join the conversation on Twitter at John underscore Hall if uh, you want to catch up on what's happening every day on beer. Randy himself is not on Twitter. Don't be fooled. And, there's that uh, other guy. There's the other guy, uh, the wannabe Randy Mosher. But if people want to find you, they obviously go to the brewery. Give me to uh, uh, get, get to randymosher.com, and you can get to both breweries from there, or just look up uh, Five Rabbits Cerveceria or Forbidden Root. And, uh, easy enough. Perfect. And we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Randy, thanks again. Thanks, John. Cheers. Always love it. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.